I used to speak on Wednesday nights every single night for 12 years, and I never went less than an hour and 15 minutes. And I had junior high and high schoolers, and the parents knew it, and parents started to come. And you know what? I never heard anyone complain, because if you love the Word of God as much as I do, time will fly. But you know what? I think time has already flown. So I'm not sure what time you're going to get out of here today, but I'm really excited to share with you. Because this series, when we broke from the book of Acts to get to December, was really exciting for me. Um, we're blessed to have a, a pastor who's a visionist. I mean, we really are. And Eric sat down with me and talked about, this is what I'm thinking about talking about in December. And I'd like to break left and kind of do this whole sequence. And the idea was to kind of put flesh on the Christmas story, which he's definitely going to finish that next week. So when he was talking about, um, you know, here's this. What about Elizabeth and Zachariah? This amazing account of two regular, faithful people who were elderly in their age, but had been faithful to God and had this promise that was given to them, but yet it never came true. They never doubted. They never wavered. Just regular folks that God said, I'm going to do something with. And God not only does something with them, right? But she gives birth to who? John the Baptist. Now, I would say to you that John the Baptist is one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. He may not have been everyone's cup of tea on how he dressed or what he looked like. You know, I can just picture him with his camel hair bathing suit and his outfit, his beard, and eating wild honey. It helps me work with Eric sometimes in some of the apparel that he wants to wear. I feel that him and John the Baptist have this kindred spirit to be wild and wayward, and yet the Lord uses them mightily. But I, just, I was thinking about, wow, okay, so the first week we started with that was so amazing. And then the second week we walked into what? Mary and Joseph. And, and Eric's like, well, what do you think about uh, Jimmy and Heather doing it? You know, Heather's pregnant. They kind of do ministry together, give them a chance to kind of put flesh on this whole thing. Pregnant from a pregnant woman's perspective. And last, when they did that, I was just so blown away. But the reality was, as we studied that, we can't settle on Mary's age, but we, we really feel good, 12, 13 somewhere in there, because you were considered an adult much younger back then, and for him, maybe 18 to 21, right? And so there are these young kids, just regular kids, and God's going to do something not just normal with them, but I mean, how would you like to have the title of immaculate conception on your thing, right? And so here's Joseph, and his first decision is, do I wed her, do I divorce her, or do I have her killed? Talk about conflict and crisis in the Christmas account. I mean, it was just kind of building this whole week. And so then, obviously, when we got to Joseph last week, Joseph, oh my gosh, just father of who? Father of God. Uh, well, that title's already taken, Joseph. So what's a regular carpenter supposed to do? And I really appreciated Eric trying to, to wrestle with that for us because, you know, Christmas, like he said, we've turned it into this giant fable that the whole world tells. And so we etherealize, we, you know, we, we, we kind of picture this barn as being this sweet-smelling place where it's a silent night, and, and the angels are singing, and I'm like, it's an inn that was designed for maybe 12 to 14 people, and it has like 40 to 60 people in it. The foyer of the inn is filled with people, and the barn is filled with 40 to 60 people's animals. That's an anything-but-ethereal sight. Some of you need to go to a barn right now. It's at this point, I'm saying, you need to quiet. There's no such thing as quiet barns. I explained this to my wife. It's kind of like you go to the Motel 6, you know, you're not even trying to do something fancy, and they like the tool shed, you know? 
It's not even designed for human beings. It's not even designed for people to give birth or even stay or sleep in. But it's crisis and conflict. And yet, into the story, God inserts himself to it in a baby and this young couple. So, of course, when he told me this week, he said, and I want you to finish it out with Herod and the Magi. And I'm like, okay, well, I hope it's in this theme because God has come supernaturally for me, put this theme inside of it about regular people doing these amazing things. And then I realized something. I'm a regular person. I'm a regular person who's doing amazing things. Can, Mark, can you put this picture up? Let me show you something that I've been blessed to do with my wife. That is my flock. That is, that is not all of them, but that is a small portion of the young adults that now call Lighthouse home. I think 17, 18 with babies. But we have about 25 to 35 young adults in this church actively serving, actively ministering, participating. And Jen and I have been doing ministry together over 30 years, and yet we're just regular folks who get to do something supernatural and great. That's one thing. The second thing I get to do, Mark, can you put the second picture there? I know you guys are waiting for it. That is my sacred spot right there. That is the Bolsa Chica Inlet. And now I'm telling all of you one of my secrets. That is where great and normal people go to experience. I mean, that's Catalina on the backside. I, t- I got goosies just looking at it. I mean, how does God allow someone to come home? I was born in Hogue. How does God allow someone to come home to get to do that? And while I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking, I'm just a regular person, God. I'm just a fisherman. How much better can it get? Mark, can you put the next slide in? It can get this much better. Ah. Because good people get to do amazing things. And when you catch a giant halibut in the sunset of an inlet like that, you realize something. God has been working in the midst of this whole thing from the very beginning. And so today when I talk to you about Herod and the Magi, I want you to realize something. There couldn't have been a more tumultuous time in the history of Israel. To add to everything else you've already heard, Herod and the Magi, the account of Herod and the Magi, is so amazing because Herod doesn't just dislike people that come after the throne. It is his sole sole purpose in life is to eradicate anyone and anything that would challenge his throne. And I'm just thinking about that, you know, because because we kind of fabulize the story, it's easy to kind of forget that, that the whole world then stops. And what do they stop and celebrate? Christ's mass. Christmas is a shortened version of mass. It's Christ's mass. That's why they want to say happy holidays. They want to do everything they can to remove him from him because he is the reason for the season, right? His story is his story. And everything about everything about our God tells me one thing. In conflict, in crisis, from the very beginning, God has, God will, and he's working as we speak today, still working right now. So the fact that I'm going to tell you a little bit about King Herod and the Magi, I just want you to realize something. This was going on whether you understood it or not. But putting flesh on it is definitely our phrase for the week as we talked about. We want to put flesh on the Christmas story so you can realize something. You're either inserting yourself into the story of history or you're excusing yourself from Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which the Bible then warned us. There is only one unforgivable sin. Everything else 
is covered. But there's only one opportunity for you to make a mistake about something, and that's to refuse the work of the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy. And so I pray this morning, as we get ready to, 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 to go to the Lord in prayer and read this passage, that you would open your heart to understand something. The history of Jesus Christ either is the greatest story ever told, and you need to insert yourself into it, or today, make a consideration that you are going to hear clearly just how conflict, crisis, trial, and struggle has been part of it from the very beginning, but it has never stopped God from moving forward, and he wants you to be part of it. Let me pray. Father God, this morning, as well as every morning in this building, since 1948, Father, I know that you have allowed your word to go out in such a way that Lighthouse is truly just that, a light to its, its people. And the truth about the, the Bethlehem story and the Bethlehem, Bethlehem account, Father, is that you, you put that first light over this little manger 2,000 years ago to tell the whole world, something's about to happen and nothing will stand against it. And I'm so privileged and encouraged to share it because the reality is if anyone could stop it, Herod could, and he would, and he even wanted to, but he could not. And I pray, Father, for the encouragement that can only come from your word this morning, that someone might actually, in fact, hear the word of God and respond to it by inviting Jesus Christ into their lives and becoming part of the story that is Christmas. We say it all and do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So let's start with reading in the darkness. Let's start with reading Matthew 2. This account's Matthew 2, 1 through 16. I'm going to break it up into four segments, and this first segment is one through three. Matthew 2, so gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first book in the Bible. Matthew, this is a book written for the Jews. This is Jewish history, and we'll read these first three verses, and then we'll tear apart Herod the Great first. All right, while you're turning, I'm drinking. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi came from the east and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, everything starts with a great story with a key villain, and there's very few villains in the Bible like Herod. Herod would match Stalin or any other world dictator that's ever lived. He had all the power and all the authority that any one individual ever could have. His rule was from 73 B.C. to 3 B.C., and he called himself Herod the Great. He called himself that because he was an Edomite. And as an Edomite, he wasn't from the land of Israel. And because of that, even though the Romans had put him in as the authority, he always knew he wasn't a true king. Being placed by the Roman rulers, he ruled in excess of 30 years. This passage actually records some of his final words. So he's in the final stages of his life. And although in these final stages he is mentally in the state of paranoia, it hasn't stopped him from accomplishing or building some great things. Some of the great things that Herod built. He rebuilt the temple, which is interesting because even though the temple has been destroyed, there is a section that still remains today. Anytime you see pictures of people at the Wailing Wall in Israel, the Western Wall, that is the foundation from Herod's temple. He also built all the aqueducts and the tunnels, which are considered a modern marvel. They brought water to desert areas and allowed people to see the king in a different light. Remember, he wanted the people to see him as great. Additionally, he built fortresses. 
not just any fortresses, but key fortresses that would protect him. So he strategically placed Antonio, Masada, and the Herodium all facing east. Interesting, right? Where do the Magi come from? East. Even so, that's where they came from and nothing could stop them. As you guys remember, Masada was the place that Israel had its final stand against Rome too, so also historic, built by Herod. Herod's thing was this. If you would follow him unequivocally, you would be rewarded lavishly. But if you challenged him in any way, in any form, or even verbally inclinated that you weren't one of his followers, you would be put to death. To say that Jesus would initially have disdain for Jesus is an understatement. At the point the Magi show up and ask him, where is the king of the Jews is? For someone that spent his entire life making sure that anyone that threatened him was killed, including but not limited to his father, all three of his sons, and according to Pliny, his wife, which he actually loved. Anyone and everyone was subject to the, to the might and power of Herod if you challenged. So you can imagine in this opening line, when King Herod heard they were looking for that, he was disturbed. And anytime Herod was disturbed, Israel was very concerned. Because when Herod's mad, someone's going to die, and Israel knew that. It's interesting that his final two commands are recorded, one in the Bible and one in history. His final two commands were this. There was a Jewish troop, kind of like a traveling circus that was going around and entertaining people. But Herod, in his final days, realizing he was sick, heard that the troop may in fact make fun of him as they traveled around the town. So he issued a decree and had the entire troop killed. Additionally, we're going to get to this passage in uh, chapter, uh, verse 7. He had all boys, two years and under, Bethlehem and the surrounding cities put to death. And we're going to talk quite a bit more about why he chose two years old and under. To say that Jesus is being born into a hostile environment is not just an understatement, but it's probably one of the grossest understatements that's ever been. From the very birth, from this initial uh, conversation with the Magi, Jesus was a sought-after child. They were seeking him and doing everything they can to put him to the sword. And Herod had all the power and might to do that, but he could not do that. God is going to use these regular people to do regular things, and one of these regular group of people that he's also going to use is the Magi. Okay? Now, the Magi are an interesting part, just like Herod's an interesting part, because the Magi, in fact, have been waiting 600 years for a sign to appear. 600 years is a long time to wait. They had been waiting. They were basically astronomers, astrologers, magicians. They were a hodgepodge of Chaldeans, a mix of many different people. But they knew one thing, that one day a sign would appear. And when that sign appeared, they knew they had a response to go to that sign and initiate that individual as king. My question to you is, do you think we understand the Magi clearly? As I went to this passage and studied it, I realized we have some misconceptions about the Magi. So let's go over this first one. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel so far. Some of that is correct. Some of that is very incorrect. The Magi, in fact, are not kings. They're not kings. They're instituted by the king, the prince of Persia. They have all the power and all the authority to make kings, right? They did travel far, 600 miles, and they did come as soon as they saw the sign. Another thing about the caravan is this. 
There's no such thing as three magi traveling at any time in history. When history records the magi traveling, it is a cohort of individuals. It is a conglomeration of, a, of astrologers, astronomers, wise men, Chaldeans, a group. And when they travel, they have so much wealth and, and uh, uh, finances with them, they have to travel with a contingency of armed individuals. So they would travel in kind of a group of, let's say, a thousand plus on a given time. So when, when the Magi came to be uh, with the Lord, a lot of us figure that the, the infant scene is kind of the stars over the manger, and everyone's there, the, the, the shepherds are on one side, the Magi on one side. There's no way the Magi were there when he was born. They saw the sign there in Persia, and then they begin to travel. From that time traveling, maybe anywhere from 40 to 60 days on the light side if they traveled fast to a year and a half, which is going to explain why Herod then chooses two years as they have this initial discussion with them. Luke 2.12 also records that all the initial conversations that were talked about Jesus in the beginning used the Greek word for infant. But by the time the Magi are actually involved in the conversation in Matthew verse 11, coming to a house, he's not in a manger anymore, coming to a house, the word switches from the Greek word for infant to a young child. Now that's really important because in the end, when Herod chooses two years old, what he's saying is he knows the child's probably between 40, 40 days old and a year and a half based on the fact that his mom had already taken him to the temple for all of his different ceremonies. So if he goes to two years old, it's kind of an overwhelming blanket to make sure that any child that's been born male in the area would be removed. And finally this about the Magi. Because they're not leaving single gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are the most expensive items of the time, they're probably leaving a contingency or a large amount of that stuff I figured the reason why they had to do that had to be something that was in the message. And as you read the message, we're going to find out later on that the Lord is going to have them leave in the middle of the night in a dream to Joseph to where? Egypt. So how would they then fund this move to Egypt and kind of the initial stages of Jesus' birth and, and kind of initial stages of his life? I kind of, I'm kind of looking at now that the, the quantity of treasure that probably came from the Magi probably meant that they had the funding to kind of do that. They could have used that as a resource. And that's important because Jesus doesn't talk a lot about money when he first begins. He's able to go straight to his work, and the Magi would have helped him do that. One of the reasons why I feel like, too, that the Herod was in uh, terror and Israel wasn't, too, is um, Malachi 4 says, the day of the Lord will be a terrible one for the proud, but a wonderful one for, the time, uh, for, the, for those who are humble. And looking at the Magi and looking at Herod, you see two amazingly different responses to the announcement that the king has been born. Who taught these Magi? How did they figure out to watch the sky for 600 years so that they could come, give all they had, travel through the desert, risk peril, leave their homes, all these different things to come bow before a king? And one of the fun things we're going to find out about that is the Magi were, in, in fact, instructed by someone 600 years before because God's hand was in it. What this ultimately reveals is the first thing. God has been working in the midst of construct, uh, conflict and crisis from the very beginning. And even though Herod's, the time of Herod is absolutely considered one of the most unreceptive times ever for a baby to be born, that God inserts him into that, specifically inserts his son into that environment and then begins to provide a way for him. And that's kind of my first point is this, is there's a way to respond to conflict and crisis that God initiated from the very beginning that we should reconsider that we need to respond the same way that he has. It always was for the benefit of good. James talks about whatever comes out of the mouth, it either builds up or breaks down. 
And now I'm seeing the same truth in God's word when it comes to conflict and crisis. From the very beginning, God has been and using crisis to be a part of it, but he allows God's, uh, his word allows all things to work out. It may take time, 600 years is a long time to wait, but it will come to pass, and we need to be patient about that. Now, I mentioned to you that the Magi knew something about that. Now, in case you hadn't realized that, one of the reasons why the Magi knew and waited for 600 years is they had been trained specifically by an individual who also had been through some crisis in his life. Do you guys remember back in the Bible when Daniel, you guys remember the character of Daniel? He had some issues in his life where he was picked up by King Nebuchadnezzar when he was a young child and taken back to be a, a protege of the king, trained in Babylonian ways. He refused. He had a couple of different situations happen, one including the lion's den, which he refused all those things, which then gave him favor with the king. One day the king woke up having a bad dream about some stuff. He called his wise men together to interpret the dream. When the wise men came to him, they always greeted the king with a similar phrase, O king, live forever. Tell us your dream and we will interpret it. The king then said to them, I, have no, I no longer remember the dream. You tell me the dream or you will die. As the wise men began to panic in their inability to process the dream, the Lord then spoke to who? Daniel. He interprets the dream for Daniel, who once again has the opportunity to step forward to the king and provide this information. As he responds to the king with the information that given to him, the king realizes something about Daniel. He realizes he has been sent by God, and Daniel 2.48 records this. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished him with many gifts, and made him rule over his entire province of Babylon, and then placed him in charge of who? All the wise men, a.k.a. the magi. So here's God working on this equation 600 years in advance. And one of the things that we know is 600 years later, when the star appeared, that training that they had been given by Daniel, they had not forgotten it. And they responded right away by assimilating all the stuff that they needed, and they went to him right away. So even Daniel gets to insert himself into this history about Christmas, right? And I think that's a really cool second point that I can talk about, is that God is working on stuff right now, whether you know it or not. Whether he answers the situation right now expediently, or next week, or next month, or next year, or if it takes a generation of your family to answer it. Your faithfulness to God and your commitment to follow his word is something that the Bible says the gates of hell will not stand against it. I think that's so encouraging to me. I have family, I have friends, I have people in my life that I work with and hang out with, and I need to realize something. God's in motion on them even when I don't see it, and I need to be patient. I need to stand down and realize something that what God said will be, will be. And just like Daniel could have no idea that what he was training the Magi at that time and place, what, what the significance was or how long it would take, the reality was the Magi play a key role in the institution of telling the world that Jesus is God, Emmanuel with us. And it all goes back 600 years in advance. Let's jump back into the story and see what happens, picking it back up in Matthew 2, 4 through 10. And see how God continues to work out the rest of the story. Then he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, Where is the Christ who was born in Bethlehem in Judea? And they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are you among the rulers of the land of Judah, but out of you will come to a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may worship him. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that was seen in the east went ahead of them. That's an interesting conversation I would love to have with you. How does a star move? I don't know. That's not traditionally what stars do, but this star does. Until it stopped again over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, this is just a little sidebar. It's not in my notes. This is my uh, free information. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth had what appear to them and tell them that they're going to get pregnant when they're old? An angel. Not just any angel. This angel takes the time to identify himself. Gabriel. Right? And if you look through that, Mary and Joseph have someone appear to them and say, I got some information for you. Who is it? An angel. Gabriel is God's messenger. Michael is his, probably the one that does 185,000 are killed in one night. I'm thinking that's not Gabriel. Trumpet playing's you know, obnoxious, but I don't think that's what it does. I think Michael's probably the one that does the enforcement for God. But Gabriel does this amazing information process, right? The angel's part of Zachariah and Elizabeth. The angel's a part of Mary and Joseph. The angel's a part of Joseph's individual quest. And now here's the angel appearing to them both again. And it's moving, because, there's, there's, because the Magi are associated with astronomy and astrology, there's a star called Regulus, which is like, the, they call that the king star. And so there's a whole sidebar in our study notes about this. You know, was it this planet? And was it this star? And then at the bottom of Regulus is this other star called um, the lion, which then they try to cross-reference that to the lion of Judah, which is where Jesus came from. But I feel like stars are kind of fixed up in the sky for a reason, and this particular star had the ability to kind of move and kind of show. I'm just wondering in the sidebar, like, was God actually so physically involved with that he, that he gave Gabriel the opportunity to be something spectacular? I think so, because the reality is when they show up, they're not just happy, they're jubilant. And Galatians 4 says, when the time, when the time set had fully come, then God sent his son. And this is kind of my third point for this is, the reality of this is not to see what we do in crisis, but I think what it's saying is now we get to see what God does in crisis. You remember last week when Eric said, um, crisis doesn't make us, it reveals us? Like, I feel like that was God saying that was part of the big message. And in the same way, conflict and crisis has always been part of it. But the reality is we put too much onus on what we do and how we respond. And what we need to think about in the Christian account is how does God respond? Like, this conflict and crisis has been going on. Each one of those uh, individuals had that situation But God, he opted to say, you know what, through the midst of that and in the midst of that, I'm going to respond in such a way that positive things that I want to happen will continue to happen and nothing will stand against them. And that's so absolutely apparent because as the story continues in Matthew 11 through 14, it says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worship him. They opened their treasures, plural, and presented them with the gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, to go, not, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their county by another way. Who warned them in the dream? I'm thinking Gabriel. They have this opportunity now to have new information. They, they had 600 years worth of information that said go. But once they got there, the situation continued to unfold for them that there was additional crisis, additional issues that were going to happen. And because they were available to hear the word of God and respond, now when they have this new information, do not go back to Herod, but go back a different way. They respond accordingly and they go. As if that wasn't enough, the next verse 13 says, when they had gone, now the Magi are returning a different direction. Now it's identified, an angel of the Lord appears to who? Joseph. 
not Mary, Joseph, in a dream, and he says, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. So there I will tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt. This is a whole new crisis of developing. (laughs) The baby has just survived the morning. The baby has now survived the first 40 days to a year and a half of its life. The baby is now going to survive this two-year killing of all the boys because the the angel of the Lord is going to instruct them to go somewhere. They're not going to be there when that situation occurs. And it says in the middle of the night, so clearly the mom was sleeping, uh, uh, Mary's sleeping, and Joseph responds accordingly. Why? Because he had learned from the first conversation with the angel what happens when you don't respond accordingly, right? (laughs) That didn't work out so well for him. I love this. So in crisis and conflict, this is like my fourth point, is that God continues to guide and direct. If you're in the middle of crisis and conflict right now, if you're in the middle of some kind of trial or some overwhelming issue, what you need to realize right now is this has been part of who we are. In this life, you will have, right? But take heed, I have overcome the world. So as you're walking through this right now, you need to realize this has been part of it from the very beginning. From the, from the institution of faith, it has been part of it. And the whole way as you look back on it, all throughout the DNA, it says the same thing. Trust God. Seek out God. Ask and you will find. And I think that's so amazing. Not only do the Magi get additional information, but Joseph gets additional information. And that's the reality we have. When we have those kinds of situations in our life, we have to realize, just as God has been directing his people from the very beginning, he continues to direct us now. Why? Because Isaiah 43 says, Do not call to mind the things of the past, the former things. Pay no attention to those. Behold, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Where is Mary and Joseph about to go through? You know, Egypt is nothing but emptiness, empty desert. And he's telling them, I'm I'm the God of second chances. I'm the God of new information. I'm the God that when something is kind of out of your hands, it's in mine. And you can can make uh, peace with this, that if we have a God of second chances that made all those different conveniences available from those uh, initial families that kind of walk with him is his, like I said, teenage parents. I mean, if you guys know any teenage parents now, I know there's some families. Teresa works with some teen, uh, teenage parents. You don't know much when you're teenage parents, right? You need to count on someone. You need some some wisdom in your life. And here's God providing exactly what they need to do, right? I just I just think about that. But it's even more than that because the reality is, is being uh, sent to Egypt does what? It fulfills something else, a prophecy. 16 says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. So he gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, anyone who was two years of old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. I mean, here's uh, Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph. They're being sent to Egypt so that that can fulfill a prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son. But in the same sense of fulfilling prophecy on one side and protection is this other thing of protection from Herod, who was furious. Now, if you're the king and you're furious and you have all the resources of the land, you can be assured that he sent out anyone and everything he could to try to go find this child. And even after killing all the small boys in this uh, town, as horrific as that was, has been, I promise you, he probably would not have stopped. But thank God that the Bible says these are some of his final commands, because in the end, this is actually the end of Herod as well. And as I took a deep breath and started to process that, I just realized something, that no thing has ever stopped our God. 
No one has ever stopped our God. No individual with resources, abundant as they may or may not be in like a king, can outsource or outwit our God. No conflict, no temptation, no trial ever recorded has outwit or outstopped our God. All things are working together to fulfill his perfect will. Every T will be crossed, every I will be dotted, and everything in its perfect time is in motion. And as we stand here today, and there still is prophecy undone, I can promise you this, with Jesus as our authority, everything that he said will happen will come to pass. And the best part of this whole Christmas story is simply this. And like a lot of other Christmas stories that you read or you hear about, and then you you have to judge them on your own, the Christmas story is an opportunity for us to insert ourselves into it. God doesn't just write history with regular people and say it's full. You know, there's, there's religions out there that say a certain aspect of heaven has already been filled by a certain number of individuals. How could that be heaven? How could it be heaven if it's filled? There's 8 billion people on the planet Earth. I like the passage that says, in my father's house, there's many rooms. I mean, he's making a way for all of us to have access to this. And what does he want us to do with the Christmas story? He wants you to answer the question, do you or do you not believe that Emmanuel is true? Because if you do, Emmanuel means something. It means God with us. And if God is with us, when did he come? How did he come? And for what reason did he come? The Christmas account answers all those. He came in the midst of the most tumultuous, turbulent time. He came through simple people who had no other intentions but to follow the Lord. Elderly people, young people, people that were considered Chaldeans, astronomers, astrologers. He has been and he continues to work in any and all people that are available because he has one mission and one mission only, and that is to fill heaven and see the population of hell decrease. The only question that I really have for you this morning is this. What will you do with the greatest gift that the world has ever been given? Because your decision to either open that gift and receive it or to put it under the tree and say, I'm not in a place to do that. I'm not ready to do that. I need to clean some things up before I come to the Lord is exactly what's stopping you from realizing it. It's never been about Joseph or Mary being ready. I don't really think based on what we learned from Joseph last week, Joseph wasn't ready. The Lord worked with him. Elizabeth and Zachariah's response, what was his response to the angel? We're going to do what? We're up in age. We're that, that time kind of came and went. You know, thanks, but no thanks, because that's, we're too old for that. Moses was 80 when the Lord called him. All things are possible with the Lord, because if it's part of his will, all things are going to happen. So the wise men made a decision. They were trained for 600 years, and when they saw the sign, they came, even though the sign put them in Herod's palace, right? They didn't land at the house. They landed at Herod's palace. Why would they land at the very place of the individual whose sole purpose it was? Because God wanted to establish and have written down for time that no thing and no one, no trial, no concept, no crisis, no conflict, and no amount of money has ever been able to impede the kingdom of God moving forward. And that's what you can celebrate this Christmas if you have received the gift of Christ. How difficult is it? It's so simple. It's as easy as... One, two, three, A, B, C, right? It's a simple thing to do. Why? Because he did not want faith to be something so complex that only pastors, 
with, you know, degrees and studying can understand. I am a fisherman. I have always been a fisherman, and I will be a fisherman. And yes, I have gone to school out of respect for what that means for the title of pastor, but I can assure you this. If I know one thing, I know one thing very simple and very pure. God chose fishermen for a reason. We are very singular in mind. So if it's raining, if it's windy, if it's sunny, if the tide is in, if the tide is out, if there's no one there, if there's someone there, if the, uh, it doesn't matter what's going on. If I'm going fishing, nothing is going to stop me from going fishing. <laughs> I am going to fish whether there's fish out there or not. I'm going to keep fishing even when no fish are biting and unlike other people who spend a lot of money on their license and their bait and their tackle and everything, when they don't catch any fish, they throw their stuff down and they say, fishing is stupid and ridiculous, and everyone who does it is an idiot. I always feel sorry for them because to me, the best day of fishing, the bumper sticker says, is better than the worst day, or best day of work or whatever. It's like, you know, hey, you should be blessed to be out there. You should be blessed to be out there to cast your line into a blank space and hope that something's out there. And when I think about sharing God's word with you, that's what keeps me up all week long. You can ask my wife, anytime I preach, I'm up all week long. My sleep pattern is absolutely destroyed because I just sit and pray, God, are you going to use this message to teach somebody today? It's not a fable. We're not, we're not walking blindly after some fable. Oh, there's so many pagan things with Christmas and there's so many, you know what guys, it's not about the distractions. I don't know what a tree is or what a tree isn't. Is it from the Nordic thing or whatever for green and when, I don't care. It's about Jesus Christ for me. It's about his his sacrifice to pay for our sins. Accept the fact that you need a Savior. Accept the fact that something greater than you has happened, that has changed the entire history of the world, that everybody stops what they're doing, and that the name of Jesus Christ is so offensive that they can't even say Merry Christmas, but they have to change it to Happy Holidays. Believe, in fact, that He has died for you, that He's made a way. It's not just a way for some, it's a way. In my Father's house, there are many rooms Christ so loved all the world. Believe that. Believe that he has. Insert yourself into the story. And then choose like the wise men did. Choose today that you would make him Lord and Savior. There's only one unforgivable sin. There's only one opportunity for you to stand in front of the beam of seat of God one day and say, oh my gosh, you are actually real. Well, then I'm going to bow and say, Jesus Christ. You know what? That's going to happen already. The scripture already says that one day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but it will be too late. You only have one opportunity in this life to make one choice that makes a difference for all eternity. Where thieves, rust, moth, they can't touch it. And that's a decision, a proclamation of faith. And I pray today that you would make a decision of faith for Christ because Christmas truly is the greatest season in the world. I love Christmas because it stops the whole world and it forces people to have a conversation. What is Christmas all about to you and why? And you get a chance to insert Jesus Christ into a conversation with your family, with your friends. You get to invite him to church on a Christmas Eve service. Easter and Christmas, I'm telling you right now, as a fisherman, it's like, it's like fishing twice a year. You better get your line ready. You better get some new hooks. You better get some bait. You better, you, a lot of you guys, you, there's two times a year where you're not going to offend anyone to invite them to church. Christmas and Easter, they're sacred to churches just for that simple reason, because we realize people will be in this building that would never, ever step foot in it. But Christmas and Easter, it's okay. Why is it okay? Everyone's happy. Everyone's joyous. There's lights. There's all, but there's something that they just can't explain, and we can explain it. His name, Emmanuel. God with us. I'm going to invite the band back up here, and I'm going to close in prayer. While the band's walking back up here, let me pray. 
Father God, Christmas has been for many years taken advantage of, turned into a lot of different things. We even create special holidays, you know, in the weeks prior to so we can boost retail sales and do all these different things. I just think, well, what a distraction. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? I mean, he who has the most toys wins. Really? He who has no toys wins. If he has Jesus Christ, you win. That is the only decision that anyone ever has to make to add sense to their life. Every other endeavor, regardless of how good it is, Father, it's senseless. I'm all about treating whales with respect and dignity. I'm all about taking care of the earth and and the things that you provided for us. These are all wonderful things. There are a multitude and a myriad of good things that Christians can be involved in. I'm even sure, politically speaking, Father, that there's Christians on both sides of the equation. But look at the madness that we live in right now. There's nothing that's clear. There's no side that makes any sense. It feels like the most tumultuous time ever, and yet I look back 2,000 years ago and I think, but we're living in a free country. We can still gather. We can still profess the name of Jesus. We can still do all these amazing things. And we already learned, where is Christianity ultimately growing right now? In the land of persecution. In the place where saying the name of Jesus or being a follower would cost your life. We've truly, Father, we have truly, like the church who's lost its first love, we have lost our first love. That we are all sinners. There is not one righteous in there. There's not one righteous, not one. And we've all been bestowed that great gift of grace. And we need to remind ourselves that at Christmas. We may have some people invited into our house that we honestly don't like, Father. And I pray right now that you would change our attitude towards that situation. Is there anyone that you don't like? No, Father, you love, your love covers them all. You came and loved all the unlovable. And you made a new way. You're making things new. You're the God of second chances. Father, I pray this morning that we would give ourselves that second chance, that we would change our ability to make an amazing Christmas live where everybody gets everything, but yet people in our family don't know God, that we've never shared it with them. Father, would we reprioritize our sphere of influence? Would we reprioritize the people and places that you've specifically put in our path? That the best thing that we could tell them is not that we've got a, a new car or a new 401k or a new investment plan. Those are all things that are going to fade away. But instead, Father, that we have our trust, hope, and faith firmly placed in the name above all other names, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning they too would join us in history. Amen.